0: And this game is underway with a bang. This is where the lacrosse area gathers to talk Wisconsin sports. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Join in by phone or text at 796-2558. Now, here's Grant Bills. So, for the last week or so, I've been saying that the NBA is on the clock. They're running out of time. they got to get it figured out. I've been saying that for probably about a week now. Now, this is true for a lot of reasons. Financially, right? You you can't wait forever, right? You just just don't have the money. You don't have the resources. Politically, right? The commissioner and the the league office, they can't work on this for a year plus. At some point, you got to say, screw it, scrap it, let's move on. There's lots of reasons why the NBA is on the clock. But the biggest reason, in my mind, is fan perception. This is something we've talked about a little bit on this show. It doesn't even feel like we're in the middle of an NBA season right now, right? Does it? I The, the Bucks played, what was it? I don't even know how many weeks ago it was. Sometime in March. The Bucs were playing a regular season. They were charging towards a number one seed. Looked like they were going to come close to 70 wins. It was exciting. The Clippers looked good. The Lakers looked good. The Raptors looked really good, even though nobody wanted to talk about that. The NBA was hurtling towards a really exciting postseason, and then it stopped. And here we are months later. And to me, it doesn't necessarily feel like we're still in the middle of an NBA season. Mentally, we've started to move on. We have a short attention span. And I don't want the NBA season to move on, but it's human nature. I've started to move on. And that's the biggest reason why the NBA is on the clock. They got to get this going now. Now, that being said, baseball is approaching the same danger zone as well. We've been talking about the NBA, how they're running out of time. Now, America's pastime is running out of time. America's pastime, Major League Baseball, is on the clock. Let's talk a little bit about that. My name is Grant Bills. This is the Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. We got I'm so excited for today's show. So excited for today's show. Yesterday was awesome. We had a guest join us uh, from the UWL coaching staff, Coach Andrew McGlenn. He was terrific, providing some some much-needed clarity uh, and information when it comes to college sports in the world of a pandemic. College sports are very complicated. It was good to get his input and his expertise. Today, we don't have a guest, but... I'm just really excited. Coming up at 5.15, we're going to go pack in time. We did this last week where we looked at an old Packer game. And we kind of reminisced. We broke it down a little bit. And and we had some some complicated, complex conversation about Mike McCarthy versus Matt LaFleur. And we're going to do some of that again today, too. But we love to reminisce. We love to get nostalgic. That's human nature. And we're going to do that coming up at 5.15. We're looking at a game from 2016, part of the the run-the-table year. So that'll be kind of a fun a fun time period to go back and revisit. Coming up at 5.45, I want to address Dave Carney on the WKTY Morning Show. His arterial daily poll question from this morning about the upcoming ESPN documentaries. It looks like they're going to try to make this a weekly thing because they had all these documentaries in the works and they said, screw it, let's move it up. We're going to move it up. There aren't any sports on. They moved the Jordan doc up. And now there are three documentaries coming up. One about Bruce Lee, uh, one about the home run chase between McGuire and Sosa, and then another about Lance Armstrong. And I want to give my thoughts on those documentaries, specifically one of them. That's going to be right before six o'clock. But I want to start with baseball because I'm finally feeling a sense of urgency with baseball up until this point. I I felt patient. I've thought, you know what? Baseball's got a little time. Football's a ways off. Summer really hasn't gotten rolling yet. We have time with baseball. And now this week, today specifically for the first time, I'm really starting to feel like the NBA's got to get their rear end in gear or the MLB. The NBA is, I, I think the NBA is, is so screwed. Well, Adrian Wojnarowski tweeted this today, and this just points out how the NBA is in a bad spot. This is the tweet. This is the shocking headline, the report from today. It was about two hours ago. NBA teams are expecting the league office will issue guidelines around June 1st that will allow franchises to start recalling players who have left their markets to return as a first step towards a formal ramp-up for the season's resumption. And people are like, yes, here we go. You want me to translate that tweet for you? This is what the tweet says. NBA teams are hoping that the league office will issue guidelines in over a week from now, so we're still a ways off, and these guidelines will allow, not force, franchises to bring back players because they've left in hoping that starts the process of starting the season once again. Do you know how many variables, and do you know how many hopefully starting trending in the right direction. There's nothing there. There's nothing concrete. The NBA has nothing. They're standing there with you, their you-know-what's in their hand. They got nothing. That, that Woj tweet today was ridiculous. I'm reading this. I was like, how is this news? They're hoping that the NBA will issue guidelines on players coming back to their city. They're not even in the same towns, right? The Lakers aren't. Well, the Lakers, that's probably a bad example because a lot of those players live in Los Angeles. Let's use Toronto for an example and and and, um, and I know Dave talked to uh, on Alaska's Matt Thomas. The NBA wants to hopefully issue guidelines to bring those players back, which, yeah, is kind of necessary to play as a, as a starting process to hopefully restart the season. The NBA doesn't have anything right now, but baseball, baseball has a chance. Baseball has a chance, but they're running out of time. Here's the thing: Spring always flies by, doesn't it? By the time we really embrace spring and the changing of the season, it's summer. Like today I walked outside, I was like, I damn, it's it's like 70 degrees. The sun is shining, birds are chirping. It feels like summer. And summer always creeps up on us. Because one day it's it's March, and we're talking about the first day of spring, and then all of a sudden, finger snaps and it's and it's and it's June. You know, we're like a week away from June. We're 10 days away from June. It doesn't feel that long ago that the Major League Baseball season was supposed to start, but it's been almost two months. It's been almost two months. Major League Baseball is supposed to start on March 26th. It's now May 20th. Yeah, they got to get it going. It's been almost two months. We've been patient. We knew it was going to take a bit. I said that two weeks ago. I'm like, this is going to take a little bit. Because they hadn't touched finances yet. Early on in negotiations, I said, guys, slow down. This is going to take a while. They're only discussing safety. They're discussing protocols to keep players healthy, all that. They haven't even touched financials yet. And that's the sticking point. And I knew it was going to be a while because, you know, this if you're married or if you have a a significant other, you've definitely experienced this where you are about to ask your significant other for something. I'm going to speak to men because I don't know what women would ask. Women are just in charge, so they typically don't have to ask men. It's like, okay, I want to go golfing this weekend with my friends, uh, but the kids have a soccer tournament or my wife and I are supposed to go to to this event and I'm going to try to get out of it. I'm going to ask my wife to go golfing. You don't ask right away. Right? You wait a couple of days and you try to butter her up. Try to butter butter the wife up. You go, you gotta be really nice, make her breakfast one day. And and naturally women are much smarter than men, so they see right through it and they're like, okay, they get suspicious. And that's what I thought baseball was doing. Baseball's like, okay, I know we'll bring up financials, we'll get there, but first we gotta butter the players up. We wanna wow them with a 70-page report on how much thought and effort we've put into safety protocols. Look at how safe we're gonna keep all the players, and look at how much detail we we've investigated. And we've planned. Look at this. And and the players in the meantime are like, yeah, this is all great. But what about the money? And they haven't even touched finances yet. Now, according to Bob Nightingale and USA Today, a proposal looks like it's going to be submitted uh, Friday, two days from now, on finances. This way, the Players Association has the weekend to look at it and hopefully bring back their counteroffer. The economic proposal, the economic side of the proposal, because we've already proposed, baseball's already proposed some things, but they haven't got to money yet. And we know that's going to be the sticking point. They're supposed to reportedly propose that on Friday. So hopefully that gives the Players Association the weekend to look at it, bring back the counteroffer, and hopefully by sometime next week, the ball gets rolling. And it needs to happen next week. Every day that passes by without baseball on TV, the value of baseball weakens. Now, the NBA, if it returned right now, the demand would be huge because we're close to the postseason. Those games matter, and there's only so many. If the NFL comes back in the fall, people are going to be all over it because NFL sells urgency. Only one game a week, only 17 regular season games, single in- elimination postseason. You must watch it. Baseball, eh, you can follow from a distance. I'm a huge Brewer fan. I try to watch every night, but sometimes it's like, ah. I got to catch myself up later. I got something I got to do. I'm sure you're the same way. You're a Brewers fan, but I can't imagine you watch every pitch of every game because that's not what baseball is about. However, if baseball were to come back right now with no other sports on TV, oh, the value is immense. People are, the ratings will be great. I don't know about the advertising dollars because the economy is kind of down right now, but the ratings will be great and the brand of baseball will be huge. But that value diminishes every day that goes by without baseball on the TV. Because every day that goes by, we get closer to college football, which took a huge step in the right direction today. Players are allowed to come back this summer for training camps. We're getting closer to the NFL, which by hook or by crook, Roger Goodell is going to put that damn product on the field. You know it. And the closer we get to that, the less valuable baseball becomes. So even if they settle on finances and get it all figured out and return to play, well, if if it takes until late July or early August, we've moved on. We're focused on the NFL now. Every day that passes, baseball's value drops. They need to do it now. And by now, I mean next week, early next week sometime. If a revenue split, a 50-50 revenue split, is a non-starter for the players, and by everything I've read and heard, specifically from Jeff Passan, he has been so adamant, ESPN's Jeff Passan, reporting they shouldn't even bring it up. We shouldn't even talk about it in interviews. He's done podcasts. He's like, I don't even want to talk about it because it's a non-starter for the players. And if that's true, then my hopes are lying with the owners. My hopes lie with the owners that they make some concessions in order to please the players to bring the product back. I've defended owners. I haven't sided with the owners. I've sided with the owners. Don't twist my words. I've been the one voice on on this station and on any station that I've heard that has actually pointed out the truth that's a little bit difficult to swallow. Because everybody likes to play dumb and say, well, I cheer for the players. Yeah, I do too. But let's not act like the owners don't have any responsibility. The owners are the, are the are the the people involved in and responsible for actually paying the players, first of all, but also paying the employees in the stadium and taking care of those those people whose lives have been completely upended. The owners are responsible for taking care of the scouts and the minor leagues and all of their employees, which is going to be really tough. People have been furloughed and laid off. The owners have a lot of economic responsibility. So if you're cheering for the owners to lose every penny, be careful because that's going to have wide-reaching effects. That being said, next week I think the owners should cave. They should present their, their, their proposal on Friday. The MLBA uh, brings back their version on Monday or Tuesday right after, after Memorial Day. And then the owners say, okay, let's go. That's the way it has to go. The owners can take a loss. The owners can take a loss. MLB players have a career of 5, 7, 10 years at best. It's a very small window in which to make money. The owners... They're lifetime business people. They have vested interests outside of baseball. They have money-making ventures outside of baseball. They can make up a loss. The product needs to be on the TV now. And it will go much quicker if the owners just say, all right, fine, fine. We'll take a loss. We'll make it up on the back end. We'll make it up in the next CBA because it's going to take a leap of faith. The owners are going to have to say, hey, look, we'll, we'll take the loss here. But when the next CBA rolls around, we expect to be made whole. And I'm sure the players will have to come to some concessions later on there. After this weekend, Major League Baseball should accept the player's counter proposal if the reports are true that the economic proposal is going to be laid out Friday. Accept the proposal early next week and have a start date for spring training. We can get this thing going by July. Because if it goes much later than July 1st, July 4th, the value starts to drop, drop, drop. We start to care less and we start to focus on football. Product needs to be on the field right now. When we come back, let's talk about football. We don't have to wait until this fall. Let's talk about the Packers. Once a week on Wednesdays, we've been going pack in time. Yeah, it's a a terribly corny play on words where we look at a throwback Packer game, we reminisce, we get nostalgic, and we compare what the Packers looked like then to what they look like now. 2016, the run the table year. Let's get into it. Coming up next, Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. Fisco Sports Show rolls on here on WKTY. My name is Grant Bills. I am your host. Hope you're having a good evening. Hope you're doing well. Uh, We're going to talk ESPN documentaries coming up at about 5.45. There's a couple exciting ones coming up, and that's what Dave Carney this morning centered the Arterial Daily poll question around. Which one are you most excited for? There's one about McGuire and Sosa, the home run race of 98, if I'm remembering correctly. There's one about Lance Armstrong. And there's one about Bruce Lee. We're going to talk about that coming up in a half hour. First, I I love this because I'm, I'm a history nut. I'm a Green Bay Packers nut. I'm a sports nut. And I think it's really fun to go back and remember and check out old games. So once a week, what we've been doing is we've been going pack in time. We've been looking at old Packer games, not from like the 80s, 70s, and 90s, but like the last 10 years games that you have a memory of or seasons that you and I have a memory of that we can remember fondly and compare and maybe learn a thing or two about how the Packers have progressed or regressed in in one way or another. So today what we're doing, we're looking at Packers Seahawks 2016. It was the week 14 game of the rum the table year. A season that we talked briefly about just yesterday at the end of the show. So let's let's try to set the scene a little bit here. It's 2016. Kenny Clark And Jason Spriggs are the top draft choices. That's the future of the team. That's the future. You can put yourself in a mindset of 2016. Green Bay starts the season. This is one of the most fascinating season trajectories, up and down trajectories in recent memory for any of our sports teams. The Packers start the season four and two. Then they lose four games in a row. Four games in a row to the Falcons, the Colts, the Titans. And to Washington, they allow 33, 31, 47, and 42 points. The defense is in shambles and the team is falling apart. I don't know about you, but there aren't many instances I can think of off the top of my head where the Packers have lost four straight games in my lifetime. Especially not giving up that many points on a week in and week out basis during a losing streak. Then Aaron Rodgers said, You know what? I think we can run the table. I think we can do it. They then beat the five and five Eagles on Thursday night football. And then they beat the six and five Texans. So they're back at five hundred. They started four and two. Then they lose four in a row to fall to four and six. Now they're six and six. And we're kind of at a we're kind of at a turning point in the season. Which way is it gonna go from here? Can they run the table? Can Aaron Rodgers' prediction actually be true? Seattle, on the other hand, come into this game eight, three, and one. They have losses to the Rams, which the Rams were terrible this year, so that was an outlier game the beginning of the year. Their other two losses are to the Saints and to the Buccaneers. Seattle would go on to finish 10-5-1 and win the NFC West. Remember, Arizona is still pretty good at this juncture. So Seattle, the best team in the West, and of course, coached by Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson, they're always going to be good. This felt like a prove-it game to me. It's like, okay, maybe they can run the table. Let me see. I'm looking at the rest of the schedule. They play the Bears, who aren't very good, and the Vikings, but they got them at home. And then the Lions, and the The Lions have always been beatable by the Packers in my lifetime. So really, it came down to Seattle. If they could beat Seattle, then I could take this whole run the table thing seriously. It's kind of like a doorway game or a portal game. If they were to win this game, well, then things get a lot more interesting. So that's the scene. Packers, Seahawks, Fox, America's Game of the Week, Lambeau Field. Let's go pack in time. I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. Nobody The title is back in town. The Green Bay Packers are world champions of football. I'm not going to lie. Half the reason why I do this segment is just to have an excuse to play Huey Lewis music as a huge Huey Lewis fan. It's a little bit of a bump in the middle of the week for me. Packers Seahawks. This was the America's game of the week. This is the 315 game. And just as a little bit of a disclaimer, I was at this game I was lucky enough to go to this game uh, with my dad. It snowed all night long. It snowed all morning long throughout the kind of 10, 11, 12 o'clock hours. And by the time the game had started, there were five to six inches of snow on the ground and then in the stadium. Now they had cleared the field off. They had time to do that, but we were sitting in snow, which is actually kind of nice because if you've ever sat outside, it's almost better to have your feet in snow. They stay warmer than if they were just on concrete or on metal. And every time the Packers scored... We could be throwing uh, throwing snow in the air. It was it was a it was an awesome environment for a Packer game because we didn't have to sit in the snow and get wet, but we could still enjoy the game. So this was America's game of the week. It was twenty seven degrees. Packers get the ball first, and they never really look back. The Packers were in control and had this thing all throughout the game. They go up seven to nothing on a Devontae Adams sixty six yard catch. And Joe Buck's call was awesome. He said, welcome to week 14 touchdown green Bay. And Devontae Adams is doing his lap around the, around the end zone. And that kind of set the scene for the rest of the game. Now the Seahawks landed their punches. Well, not really the Seahawks played terrible and Russell Wilson played terrible. And we'll get into that. But with that opening score, the Devontae Adams, 66 yard catch on third and two that cracked the, the seal open. And the Packers were kind of off and running now. This is a fantastic and fascinating Devontae Adams game. Now, in the six games up to this game, he was actually number one in the NFL in yards per game. This is a really interesting Devontae Adams game. This is the third season, his third season. So he had his rookie year, his second year, which was terrible, as we all remember, we all wanted him cut. And then this season, he starts to come on as a consistent, dynamic receiving threat. And this game was a fascinating case study in the progression of Devontae Adams' career. Leading into this game, he was leading the NFL in yards per game. He was a monster for quantity. He was getting catches. He was getting targets. Him and Aaron Rodgers were finding that connection. And in this game, Aaron Rodgers had time. Seattle coming into this game was on a two-game streak of no sacks. And they didn't get a sack of Aaron Rodgers until either late in the third quarter or early in the fourth. So they almost went three straight games without getting a sack. This Packers offensive line was very good with Bulaga, Bakhtiari, Lane Taylor, Lindsley, And I'll have to apologize because I don't remember who was at the other guard spot. But it was basically a younger version, flop Elton Jenkins and Lane Taylor, of last year's offensive line. And then, of course, no Billy Turner as well. And he had all the time in the world, and he used all the time in the world. For those old-school football fans who hate Aaron Rodgers holding the ball, and I can think of a couple of, of vocal listeners in particular, Troy Aikman clearly says, he states, in the first quarter, direct quote, I don't think there's another quarterback in the NFL that holds the ball as long as Aaron Rodgers. If Aaron Rodgers has time, he's going to use the time that he has. Even if he's got easy throws underneath to drop it off, no, well, I got time. I'm going to wait. I'm going to see what else is out there. And I know that's a, a very polarizing strategy, a very polarizing idea, especially in the year 2020. Four years ago, maybe not so much. But after seeing what we've seen for the last five years, holding on to the ball longer than necessary has become a, a, a polarizing concept. In Packers fandom. Aaron Rodgers got off to an incredible start in this game. He started 11-12 with a perfect passer rating. That included a couple of touchdowns and a pile of yards. And he was confident. When Aaron Rodgers is going deep on 3rd-2 and and dropping dimes in a bucket. Okay. Hell yeah. It's fun to watch. Lambeau Field's hopping. The offense is clicking. Now, when Aaron Rodgers isn't on and he doesn't have a perfect passer rating, and he's choosing to go deep on third and two, then it can be a little infuriating, especially once again in 2020, a couple, a couple of years removed from this game. Now, because Aaron Rodgers was so good, and he was so on target, this game in specific, and really this entire run-the-table run, where they won six in a row to end the year in charge into the playoffs, because Aaron Rodgers is so good, this is a great game to look at his wide-receiving core at the time. And because we don't really consider the current wide-receiving core of the Packers to be all that great... It's also a great opportunity to compare then and now and see the differences. So at this time, I still believe Jordy Nelson was the best wide receiver. This is basically their core. And I don't mean that in a sense of like an engineering core or a wide receiving core. I mean the core. Like the like the um like the central nervous system, like the core. Like this, this was their 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 bunch of of A plus receivers. They had Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb, Jared Cook, and Devontae Adams. Those are their top four targets. I was surprised in this game that Aaron Rodgers didn't force the ball to Jordy Moore because I, I I just, when I think of Jordy Nelson, especially late in his Packers career, I think Aaron Rodgers forcing the ball nonstop. When he's not forcing the ball to Jordy, it's typically a pretty good sign, and he had two touchdowns in this game, including one where in the replay, you can actually see him looking back at Rodgers with Cam Chancellor in his face and giving a little point to the pylon. Like they're playing football in, in the schoolyard, pointing over here. Hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me over here. And Aaron Rodgers is doing the little little point with his head, and he'll go this way, fake this way, and the connection is just there. It's unreal. But he didn't force to Jordy Nelson in this game. That's a really good indicator that the offense is flowing. Now, Randall Cobb, this game is really representative of his Packers career. He actually left with what looked like two ankle injuries, an injury to both ankles, goes into the locker room, comes back in, and then does everything, including taking some handoffs, which I don't agree, and if we were doing a full show on Mike McCarthy and the things that bothered me, that would be at the top of the list, but we're not. Randall Cobb, really representative of his career as a Packer. Getting hurt, coming back, gutting it out, and really attacking the toughest part of the field to attack. Over the middle, taking hits, running slants, getting up the seam. That was Randall Cobb's game, and that was very clear in this matchup from 2016. Jared Cook. Jared Cook was good. He actually left this game with an injury on a play that absolutely should have been a pass interference and should have been another touchdown before half. They didn't end up needing it. But at the time, I remember like, you're kidding me. We're doing this with Seattle again. But a couple of times throughout the game, Troy Aikman specifically said, "Man, I don't, I don't think they've had a guy that can attack the middle of the field since Jerm- they haven't had a guy like this since JerMichael Finley." Which I'm convinced I'm going to be saying until I'm 45 years old. I don't think we're ever going to stop saying that. They need, they haven't had a guy like that since JerMichael Finley, and Jared Cook is just another, another name to throw on that pile. Between him and Martellus Bennett and Jimmy Graham, none of those guys were as good as JerMichael Finley, and that's a comment that we're almost sarcastically making for years and years to come. Devontae Adams, on the other hand, this is an amazing Devontae Adams game. He had his rookie year where really he had two standout performances against the Patriots in the regular season, and then in the postseason against the Cowboys where he stepped up. And as a a rookie, as a wide receiver, that's really all you can expect, especially when you're already joining an established wide receiving core. You have your moments, but you can't be expected to contribute consistently. His second year, he gets banged up. So does the rest of the wide receiving group and he never really has a chance. Now he had a lot of issues with drops, but he worked it out into this year. And Troy Aikman pointing it out. Now he's finally healthy, and you see the connection. You see the, the talent and, and and how dynamic number 17 is as a wide receiver. And they're specifically using him in this game to target Deshaun Shedd. They want to stay away from Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor, so they're going to Adams because he has the favorable matchup. And as many complaints as we had about Mike McCarthy's offense, that was one thing that McCarthy did really well. He valued lots of weapons. You need more than one, which gives Aaron Rodgers flexibility to target a weak link. When you only have one elite wide receiver, in the case currently with Devontae Adams, that's great, and you can do a lot with that, but it doesn't give you much flexibility. When you have multiple dynamic targets, you can say, all right, there's the guy we want to target. We're going to go at him all day long. And in this game, that task fell to Devontae Adams, and he was tremendous. Now, Having more than one great target also gives you depth in case of an injury. Jared Cook gets hurt. Randall Cobb gets hurt. Later on in the year, Jordy Nelson gets hurt. And you can rotate. All right, now we'll go to Devontae Adams. Now we'll feature Jordy Nelson. We'll feature Jared Cook. When you have multiple pass catchers, you can not only target a defense's weakness, but you're more prepared in the case of injury. That's the difference between McCarthy's offense and Lafleur's offense. We got to take a break. I want to continue talking about this game, including the running game, and how the running game has changed since Mike McCarthy until now with Matt LaFleur. It's really quite impressive. The differences are kind of astounding. And I want to lead lead next segment reading you the list of running backs that the Packers employed and got carriers for this team in 2016. It's not that long ago, but you'll go, oh my God, I forgot all about this. We'll talk about that coming up next. Pack in time here on the Wisco Sports Show. Coming up next here on WKTY. This show needs more Huey Lewis. It's the Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. My name is Grant. Trying to bring a little bit of a a classic vintage sound because we're going pack in time. Once a week, every Wednesday, last couple of weeks, we've been going pack in time and looking at an old Packer game. Oh, We don't have any sports to talk about right now, so let's create one. We're talking about the Packers 38-10 route of the Seattle Seahawks. Week 14, 2016 at Lambeau Field. I was there. I have a couple of friends who were there as well. It was a really memorable game, mostly because the Packers won by so much. Russell Wilson actually threw five interceptions in this game. Some of them were unlucky, but also Russell Wilson was just terrible in this game. And it was a part of the Packers' fabled run-the-table run, where they won six in a row to end the year and then winning two more games in the playoffs before eventually losing in the NFC Championship game to the Falcons. And we'll talk about that Falcons game to end this segment. That's how we'll kind of tie it up and put a bow on it. We talked about Aaron Rodgers and his weapons and the passing game. But what about the run game? You are going to be astounded. Because I bet even the most loyal, the most interested Packer fan doesn't remember the miserable, ugly, clunky, eclectic mess that was the 2016 Packers running game. It was terrible. Rodgers was so good in this game and on this run that if you were to just rewatch this game You wouldn't really notice it. The running game is not a focal point in this game at all because Aaron Rodgers is great. He was 18-23 to for 250 yards, three touchdowns, no picks. He was great. And he got off to a hot start and never really looked back. The running game isn't a focal point of this game. But 2016 as a whole, it's absolutely wild. These are the running backs by yards in Week 14. So in Week 14, these were the rushing leaders in order, top to bottom, for the 2016 Green Bay Packers. Here we go. Ready? Number one was Eddie Lacy, who got hurt early on in the year. Number two was Aaron Rodgers. Number three was Ty Montgomery, then James Starks, then Eric Ripkowski, or Aaron Ripkowski, and then Joe Carriage, who was another fullback that most people forget about. Also keep in mind that at one point, the Packers traded for Niall Davis from Kansas City, then waived him two weeks later, and also picked up Kristen Michael off waivers. They re-signed him that offseason and then let him go because, of course, they drafted Devontae Mays, Jamal Williams, and Aaron Jones. That was the running back situation. A disgusting mix of Lacey, Montgomery, Starks, Ripkowski, Carriage, Niall Davis, and Kristen Michael. <clears throat> Quite the difference from the 2019-2020 Packers, which had a very calculated run game with a very calculated set of running backs. Mike McCarthy took a scattergun approach to the running game. It was clunky, and it was random. Ty Montgomery actually played really well down this stretch and in this game. I think his best game was against the Bears a couple of weeks after this game. But Ty Montgomery in this game was great. He had nine carries, but he went for 41 yards. He had a touchdown. He did a little couple of things out of the passing game as well. Ty Montgomery was really, really good, but it's I I don't think Mike McCarthy best knew how to use him because he's also trying to work fullbacks in there. He tried to work Randall Cobb in there as as a running back, even though he had just hurt both his ankles, which made no sense to me. And on third and short, he didn't have Ty Montgomery in there. He had the brand new to the system, Kristen Michael, who already had a problem remembering playbooks as it was, but now he's in a new environment, and there were a couple of broken plays, specifically in one third and short, where he didn't follow his block and wasn't there to take the ball from Rodgers. He went the wrong way, and Aaron Rodgers basically just had to go belly up and lay down, and they punted the ball away. Mike McCarthy just took a scattergun approach. He said, okay, these are our running backs. We're going to throw them out there whenever I feel like one has the hot hand, and, and there's really no rhyme or reason apparently, about it, because that's the vibe I get when I watch, and I would challenge you to do the same. I bet you draw the same conclusion. Matt LaFleur, on the other hand, is much more calculated about his running game, as we know, because he just drafted another running back, he drafted a tight end, drafted Jay Sternberger last year. He has a very specific plan for Aaron Jones, Jamal Williams, and now A.J. Dillon, a very specific idea and a specific plan on how to integrate all three backs into an offense that's focused around the running game and then uses play action off of that running game. However, Matt LaFleur must either believe one or two things. He must either love his current group of wide receivers, which I find slightly hard to believe. I have high hopes for EQ and Valdez-Scantling. I, I'm not going to get my hopes up. I'm, I, I don't think they're going to be great, but as a fan, I want them to be great. He either loves his current group of wide receivers or two, just doesn't care. He's like, well, we don't need a bunch of great wide receivers. I'd rather have a deep backfield and I'd rather build a running game. That would be one stark difference for Mike McCarthy. Matt LaFleur saying, you know what? I don't need a, 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 a couple great wide receivers. I only need one and we'll build around that. That's a big difference between LaFleur and McCarthy and a difference that we've talked about the way they they set up their offense, what they prioritize and what they don't. Now, what about the Seahawks, and what about the Packers' defense? Because the 2016 Packers' defense, uh, to put it mildly, I, I don't, look, I don't know whether to hate on the defense for being terrible or to praise Dom Capers and that defensive coaching staff for winning games at all, because that defense was terrible. It was bad. And how they won six games in a row, I have no clue. A lot of it was due to Aaron Rodgers, who played like an MVP. Matt Ryan ended up winning it, which is understandable. It's unfortunate. Because I think Aaron Rodgers down the stretch was a more dominant player. But Matt Ryan's team was better. They won more games. I I get how that works. The Packers defense was terrible. And so was Russell Wilson in this game. He had five interceptions. Five. Now, only three were his fault. Let me repeat that. Only three, which is still an absurd number. He threw one to Morgan Burnett on a crossing route to Jimmy Graham where Jimmy Graham in true form just kind of fell over and Morgan Burnett made a great play on the ball. But Graham was never open in the first place. That's a bad throw. That's on Russell Wilson. Number two, he tried to hit Jermaine Curse down the seam, but he held it up in the air and Demarius Randle makes a brilliant center field type play to snag it. Number three was, um, and now I've lost my spot, was Quinton Rollins in the corner of the end zone. Where the ball was tipped up in the air off Ladarius Gunter and Rollins was able to bring it down and toe tap and bounce. That was number three. Then Demarius Randall grabs another one off the the ball goes off the helmet of Jermaine Curse and he snags it down. And then Micah Hyde with number five took a, a, a tipped ball that was thrown too high on a screenplay, also Russell Wilson's fault, and, and returned it. Five interceptions. Now three of them are solely on Russell Wilson. You can make an argument that the other two could be. He was sporadic. He was inaccurate. He was erratic. He had five throws in the first half that I counted, and I was keeping tally. He had five where he had a wide open wide receiver, and he straight up missed. And two of those throws were touchdowns. Now, the Packers were leading 21-3 to at halftime. Seattle started the second half with the ball. If he completes one of those, it's 21-14. to Seattle has the ball. Or if he completes two, which I believe he would now at this point in his career, Seattle's leading at halftime. Russell Wilson was terrible. Now, Aaron Rodgers was great, but this was as much about Russell Wilson and that offense just being bad as it was about the Packers defense actually stepping up. I don't understand how Russell Wilson was this bad in this game. I I don't understand. They had given up. I talked about it earlier. In the four games leading up to uh, this stretch, remember, this is the same Packers defense that gave up 33, 31, 47, 42, and Russell Wilson cobbled up 10 points against his defense. I'm still in disbelief. I'm still in disbelief on how bad Russell Wilson was in this game. Now, the Packers' defense is opportunistic, and that's a big calling card of Dom Capers' defenses. Opportunistic and forced turnovers, and the Packers' offense capitalized on those turnovers. But I still don't understand how Russell Wilson was that damn bad in this game. It's, It's like a game that's just kind of lost to history that no one talks about because it's so unlike Russell Wilson. It's so unlike Russell Wilson. Now, to kind of put a, a bow on this game, what does it all mean? So far this week, we've we've talked a couple of times about how Aaron Rodgers is similar to Michael Jordan. And there's a couple of different ways where I think they're similar. The way that they can be a solo act, if need be. Michael Jordan said, I'm going to win any way I know how, even if i got to do it by myself. And Aaron Rodgers, at times, has done the same thing. There was an element of that in 2016. There was certainly an element of that in 2015 when he's throwing to Jeff Janis and Jared Aberderis. Solo offenses. I think they both hold grudges. And I, bo- and I think they're also great at being present in the moment. There was an author who was, uh, who was quoted in this documentary saying, Michael was never anywhere else. He was always right there. Present. In the moment. And Michael had this skill of not worrying about a shot that he hadn't taken yet. Being present. Being in the moment. I think Aaron Rodgers is that way too. And I think, the, I think we can run the table. I think that quotation sums it up really well. Aaron Rodgers knew in that moment, okay, if I if I am confident in myself and in my team, we might just be able to do something special. And they did. 2016 is also a great example of how Michael Jordan is like LeBron. He elevated his team to an unnatural level. The best team in the NFC that year was Atlanta. And while the Packers were playing the Seahawks on this Sunday at 315... Atlanta was playing the Rams in Jared Goff's rookie year when Jeff Fisher was still the head coach. And at one point in that game, they were up 42 to nothing. They ended up winning 42 to 12. That Falcons team that was coached by Dan Quinn, the offense is coordinated by Kyle Shanahan. That team was incredible. And Aaron Rodgers unnaturally willed that Packers team to the NFC Championship game where they matched up with the Falcons, and we know the story. And to me, it's very similar to LeBron. Elevating his team to the level of the Golden State Warriors, but then getting there and being like, man, this isn't even fair. This isn't even close. So we've been comparing Aaron Rodgers to Michael Jordan in a lot of ways. 2016 is a great example of how Aaron Rodgers has played a LeBron role in his career as well. Elevating his team to a level where, you know, that that Packers team really had no business being in the NFC Championship game. Not at all. When we come back, let's wrap up the Wisco Sports Show. I want to take a look forward at some of these pieces, these documentaries that ESPN is releasing. I also want to address uh, Dave on the WKTY Morning Show, Dave Carney, his arterial daily poll question that's on the website. It's on Twitter. That's how I want to wrap up the show. This has been a lot of fun looking at old Packer games. I hope to do it again next week. We might just have to do it until we get live sports back, which hopefully is sooner rather than later. Final segment of the Wisco Sports Show coming up next. Stay right here on WKTY. WKTY. Final segment of the Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. My name is Grant Bills. Thanks for hanging out. You can always check out the the show in podcast form. Just go to WKTYsports.com or use our mobile app. The show will go up as a podcast just after 6 o'clock because, you know, I got to actually finish the show first. To conclude today, I actually want to talk about something a little bit different. Dave Carney of the WKTY Morning Show Posted the arterial daily poll question this morning, as he does every morning, on our website, wktysports.com, and on our Twitter page as well. This is the poll. What upcoming ESPN documentary are you looking forward to the most now that The Last Dance is over? So if you haven't been paying attention or you haven't heard, ESPN has expedited a couple of different projects that were set to premiere later this year, but they moved them up because there's nothing else on. And obviously, The Last Dance was a huge success. The options... Maguire Sosa, they're going to do a, a documentary about the home run chase. There's a documentary coming out called Be Water, and that's about Bruce Lee. And then there's a third about Lance Armstrong, and it's simply called Lance. Now, Bruce Lee is awesome. For those of you who, who don't really know Bruce Lee's story, other than just kind of a fighter and a, and a TV character, Bruce Lee was one of the first people to revolutionize martial arts. Back when Bruce Lee came onto the scene, you didn't, you didn't meld styles. You you weren't a complete fighter. You committed yourself to one style or another, whether that was karate or kung fu or Wing Chun. You didn't didn't stray from that. What Bruce Lee did was he actually made himself a well-rounded fighter. He started with karate and kung fu, and then he added some Western styles of fighting, like boxing and wrestling and grappling. And he turned himself into this all-around fighting machine. And of course, that's how we look at martial arts now. Of course, you want to be complete Right? You don't want to be a one-trick pony. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, but you want to be complete. Bruce Lee was the first guy to do that. I'm excited for that documentary. I think that's going to be really cool. Now, Maguire and Sosa, I know about the steroid thing, but the Maguire-Sosa documentary should be interesting because that home run chase energized many fans and brought them back to baseball after a lockout basically nixed the season in the mid-90s. A couple of years later, the home run chase got people back into it. Maybe they had taken a couple of years off from fandom and they said, all right, I'm back, and it got them reinterested. So I get those two documentaries. And then there's Lance Armstrong. Now, many consider Lance a disgraced, discarded sports figure. And I cannot stand that perception of Lance Armstrong. It drives me wild. It drives me insane that that's how we perceive Lance Armstrong. Let me give you a a short history lesson. If you're driving and you're listening right now, or you're listening on the mobile app, or maybe you're listening to the podcast later on, and you're thinking, damn Lance Armstrong, he's a cheater. And he to disgrace this country on a global stage. Allow me to educate you politely. Not, I'm not trying to have a tone here. Let me educate you in history just a little bit. The Tour de France started in 1903. That was the first year it was ran. Doping, which was the eventual crime that Lance Armstrong paid for and was stripped of all seven of his consecutive Tour de France titles, doping was not only allowed for the first 60 years of the, the Tour, it was encouraged. And early on, cyclists would drink. They would do drugs to dull their senses so they could have a a higher pain tolerance. And then they figured out, well, actually, let's not dull our body. Let's energize it, right? Let's take uppers instead of downers. So doping became a thing, and it was allowed and even encouraged for the first 60 years of the Tour de France. Now, of course, times change, right? Rules change. I'm not saying that doping should be okay. I'm just trying to give you a brief history of, of the cycling world. Now, during Lance Armstrong's run, which went from 1999 to either 2005 or 2006. I'm not exactly sure how the math works. Seven consecutive Tour de France titles, which is unprecedented as as unprecedented is. In those years, from 98 to, and I'm not going to take you through every year, let's start through 98 and go through, 2000, through 2001. I looked at the top 10 finishes from all these Tour de France's. I'm going to now let you know about how many... Doping, confirmations or accusations there were in the top 10 for each of those years. 1998, in the top 10 finishers, there were five confirmed dopers, one admitted to it, and two more were accused. In 99, four were confirmed, one admitted, two more accused. In the year 2000, six of the top 10 finishers were confirmed dopers, three more were accused. And likewise, in t- 2001, five were confirmed, three were accused. This is very public information, you can go look it up. Everyone was doing it. Absolutely Everyone and in the situation of Lance Armstrong when the news broke that he was also doping the tail wagged the dog meaning we started from the conclusion that Lance Armstrong was a cheater and moved backwards from there whereas we should have looked at cycling as a whole and said okay well here's the situation here's what's going on and Lance Armstrong was not a ringleader but rather just kind of a gear in a big machine of of doping and cycling during that time period now Lance Armstrong was the best. Because he won seven in a row. He doped just like everybody else. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he beat every other cyclist's ass for seven straight years. The tail wagged the dog in this scenario. We overreacted at the time and we still haven't gotten past that stigma. Perception also matters in this situation. The world hated the United States starting in 2004 because they invaded Iraq. Really without support from anybody else on the globe. And Lance represented that sentiment of American exceptionalism of arrogance and really independence because Bush acted so unilaterally in 2004 and even the French themselves, the site of the Tour de France, hated it to the point where in this country, the restaurants were, they were taking items off the menu. They're like, man, these aren't French fries anymore. These are freedom fries. This is all true. Go, go read the history about it. It's unreal. The French were just one party around the world that were opposed to Bush and opposed to the Americans. So at that time, Lance Armstrong represented the American idea and most people hated the American idea at the time. So everybody opposed Lance Armstrong. That drove media reaction. That drove really a campaign to smear Lance Armstrong, but not really everybody else. And I understand Lance was on a different stratosphere because he won seven straight. So heavy is the head that wears the crown, even in the case of cheating. But the situation at the time was unreal, and it was this perfect storm in the worst way for Lance Armstrong. And I, I don't know if this should just be a side note, but I feel like this is a pretty big deal as well. Lance Armstrong, as of 2012 and that was the newest number that I could find today, and this is according to Forbes, had raised $470 million for cancer and had helped 2.5 million patients with services, with care, with outreach, and with support. We worship Alex Rodriguez, who doesn't have half the accomplishments of Lance Armstrong and hasn't done half of the social work that Lance Armstrong has done. Meanwhile, our country is about to celebrate The great accomplishment of Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire, who were cheating too. Think of how unreal that is. Think of how unreal this is. We're probably never going to talk cycling on the show again. Maybe we'll talk about it right after the doc comes out, just barely. But before you watch this Lance documentary and you fill yourself with outrage at how he embarrassed our country, you should learn a little bit about what was going on in the Tour de France. Lance Armstrong was the best. He doped, but so did everyone else. And the excuse that everybody was doing it. Well, yeah, actually, literally everyone was doing it. Go look at the results. It's proven. It's easy to find information. Go check it out. I'm excited about the Lance documentary. I'm a Lance fan. I'll admit it. I'm not afraid. Tomorrow, we're going to talk to Bart Winkler of uh, WSSP in Milwaukee, 105.7 FM, The Fan. Always an interesting conversation. Trying to reconnect with some of my guests. So Bart Winkler, Beyond Tomorrow. We're going to continue to talk about baseball because we're reaching a point of no return. Nobody else is labeling it that yet, but that's what it is. And that's they need to figure it out in the next week. We'll talk about that tomorrow and whatever else comes up. The Wisco Sports Show, same time, same place. Talk to you then.